Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. A quick note before we get started, but this episode of the podcast will be slightly different than any we've done so far. For the first time ever, Gangry the Podcast will have multiple segments, three to be exact. We'll start with the usual interview with a reporter about a great story he or she has written. This week, I'm talking to Nathan Thornburg. But then we'll follow up with a segment on storytelling in general. This week, I'm talking with David Caswell, who is developing something called Structured Stories. Finally, we're going to end every episode with a short segment on recommended reading. This is where I want you all to get involved. Today, I'll tell you about a couple amazing things I've been reading. But in the future, I want you to email me at gangrythepodcast at gmail.com and tell me what you've been reading. Write between two and 300 words about something great you've read. It can be fiction, nonfiction, poetry, anything, and send it to gangrythepodcast at gmail.com. We'll pick the best as they come in and record a segment for an upcoming episode. And now our first segment. This week I talk with Nathan Thornburg, a chief editor and publisher of the website roadsandkingdoms.com. Thornburg spent much of the last decade as a foreign correspondent and editor for Time Magazine. He's reported on everything from cyber war in Russia to information wars in Georgia, not the state Georgia, by the way, to drug wars in Juarez. He also co-founded the parenting blog, Dad Wagon. We're going to talk about his story, The Root of All Things, which ran on rosenkingdoms.com earlier this year. I actually heard about the story for the first time during our episode with Mike Wilson. That's episode 34 if you want to check it out. Wilson had been told about the story by one of his reporters at the Dallas Morning News and started reading it late one night. He said he couldn't put the story down. I had the exact same experience. One side note, I'm now an associate editor with River Teeth, a journal of nonfiction narrative. My job is to find great pieces of literary journalism that have already been published in other magazines and websites and recommend them to the editors at the journal for republishing. In the spring 2015 issue of River Teeth, we republished Justin Heckert's amazing Indianapolis Monthly story, Susan Cox is No Longer Here. And this fall, we'll be reprinting Thornburg's The Root of All Things. So let's talk with him about it, shall we? Welcome to Ganger the Podcast, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Let's start by talking about your story, The Root of All Things, which ran on the website roadsandkingdoms.com earlier this year. Uh, first off, can you give like an overview of the story? The story is a piece that I had in my notebooks for a couple of years, actually, and it sort of recounted the tale of me going down to Iquitos uh, in the Peruvian Amazon to take something called ayahuasca, which is this plant-based psychedelic medicine that has been a traditional... Uh, religious service um, the instrument and sort of diagnostic tool of a lot of the Amazonian Indians for a long time, but is 
becoming a more and more popular thing for Western and foreign tourists to try to get involved in when they when they come down to the Amazon, either in Brazil or on the Peruvian side. How did you um, how did you find out about this? What made you want to go down there and and do this story? I was right at the beginning of starting this this company that we have. It's called Roads and Kingdoms, and I I, I think there in it's useful to know a little context for for the company itself because that's kind of what brought us down there. I had left my job at Time as a foreign correspondent and met up with a food editor at Men's Health, uh, a really talented writer about food and culture, and we got together and started going to different countries to try out uh, this combination of voices, sort of news and culture, war and food, and one of the countries we went to was Peru, so I was looking around for stories that I was interested in doing while Matt, was uh, my partner, was going to be in Machu Picchu and, and talking with a lot of the really amazing chefs uh, that are coming out of Lima. Uh, I wanted to go and do something that felt a little more on the news and a little more on the edge. And this was kind of a, a moment when ayahuasca tourism was becoming really known here in the States as, as something that, that large numbers of people were doing relatively so I decided that I had to go down and tell this story, and the great thing about being at Roads and Kingdoms, instead of having been employed by uh, Time Magazine, a part of Time Inc., a part of Time Warner, is that I actually got to go and take the drugs, and nobody could tell me I couldn't. And that was totally key, both for me and for the people whom I was with, the 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 uh, Ayahuasca Foundation that that ran the ceremonies that I was involved with, we all agreed, uh, as, as Carlos Tanner, the head of the Ayahuasca Foundation, put it, writing about ayahuasca tourism without actually doing ayahuasca is sort of like reviewing a film that you never saw. Had they, um, I, I think we had talked earlier, uh, and you had mentioned that there had been, they had like said no to some media outlets who wanted to do a story but, but didn't want to participate. It's tough. I mean, I, certainly if I was in, you know, corporate media and uh, was sort of in HR trying to be part of the legal team, I would totally not allow my correspondents <laughs> to go and touch the face of God thanks to the help of these extremely powerful hallucinogens in the jungle. So I don't want to heap on, you know, companies that forbade their correspondents and producers from uh, from taking this, but I, I know that there were, I think it was CNN had tried to go down and, and do some segments, and they uh, they were unable to work with the Ayahuasca Foundation anyway. I think they found a shaman, uh, ultimately, that, that would allow them to come and record and film there. Um, but the people I went with, people who I uh, ultimately and, and to this day think are incredibly ethical and doing it the right way, which is important down in Peru, um, they just they just didn't want to be a party to that. It's very easy to write a salacious uh, piece about ayahuasca or shoot a kind of scandalous uh, segment about it. And I'm not saying that that's what CNN did, but because um, I haven't seen what they, they they shot about it. But it's 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 much harder to kind of get past a, a headline and try to understand what the appeal of this is, what the power of the drug is, like where you separate fact from fiction. Mm -hmm. 
the man that you kind of uh, who kind of guides you on this journey uh, is named Don Enrique. Um, how did you hear about him, and and what was it like to spend time with him? Don Enrique is an interesting dude. He uh, is a Shipibo uh, Indian, which is they're actually not from the area around Iquitos. Um, but his father, uh, he came from a long line of medicine men, and his father had heard about um, this. It, it, actually, I feel like I should take a break here. As I did at the very beginning of the story that I wrote for Roads and Kingdoms, I sort of set up the the idea of crossing over where you leave like rational thought and, and sort of reason as we would recognize it here in the States and you start talking about this metaphysical world that ayahuasca inhabits um, and they're two incredibly different kind of conversations uh, so I'm gonna just cross over for a second and, and talk a little meta metaphysical if, if I can uh, in this part of the Amazon outside of the city of Iquitos which is the world's largest landlocked city there's no roads to anywhere else it's this jungle this pretty wretched jungle river traffic town. Um, in this one part of the jungle, there is a bioluminescent tree whose powers far exceed any other tree of its kind and is something of a node of the sentient plant organism that is the Amazon basin. This is the Shipibo view of it, that there's this tree that gives you magical powers of divination, of prophecy, of healing, and that tree is what attracted Don Enrique to that parcel of land outside of Iquitos. Even though it means that he has to have his father fly in special plants from his Shipibo homeland uh, by the bushel so that he can make his different teas and his different preparations outside of ayahuasca, um, he wanted to be there and that's where his great healing power comes from, this tree that literally glows at night. Now, crossing back to the rational side, <laughs> I never saw this tree. I, I saw a lot of insane things when I was hallucinating on ayahuasca, and I believed like a very high percentage of them, uh, at least relative to my usual cynical self. Uh, but I do not know that Don Enrique is gifted with incredible powers of uh, divination. I will say he is an incredibly genuine uh, and and sort of um, seems like a caring guy, which is important because the headlines, those salacious stories you read about ayahuasca are all about abuse of the shaman, mm -hmm. you know, sort of relationship. It's very easy. You're completely incapacitated, obviously. You're highest as a kite on this stuff and you're in the middle of the Amazon in a very unfamiliar environment with people who speak a language that you don't. I mean I speak Spanish but uh, they communicate in, in, in native languages uh, primarily so you're you're really at the at the mercy of your shaman and I know that you know there have been like sexual assaults that have gone on certainly not with Don Enrique that I've heard of but in other you know in other so-called shamans it's funny, William Burroughs had written about this when he traveled through Peru, and, and the, the quote is something about how, um, you know, the, the, the worst person in the village, I think he wrote, the most inveterate drunk liar and loafer in the village is invariably the medicine man. <laughs> and Iquitos feels that way, like you will get accosted on the street, either people offering you pasta, which is the local slang for cocaine, 
or ayahuasca, and it's it's said with about as much love <laughs> and care as basically we'll get you super high and maybe rob you. Right. Um, so it's important. That's here's my bit of service journalism. Just know who you're going down with. Go with the Ayahuasca Foundation if you can. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know those guys and trust them now. Um, and trust is pretty important. Uh, but Don Enrique is a guy who strikes me. Um, you know, if it if it weren't for his metaphysical, you take the the, the metaphysical tangents out of it, he could be a caregiver. Uh, in a Western context, too, I think he actually does just kind of care about people on that level. Did you re did you do any research into Don Enrique himself, or was it trusting the foundation uh, and knowing that they would hook you up with somebody who was going to be reputable and and, and worth taking a chance with? Uh, it was trusting the the foundation, um, and you know, I, I and Carlos Tanner is a, a guy from Massachusetts, and there's actually a lot of him on online, and you can kind of get a sense of who he is. It, not to say that that everything he says uh, makes sense to the rational mind. I mean, he has a video testimonial on uh, on YouTube where he's talking about you know, how he healed his uh, gastric ailments using ayahuasca. And what he did is he uh, left his body and he re-entered himself through his mouth uh, and then swam down into his stomach and found that the reason why he has GI problems is that there's a squid, like an actual squid, that was in there blocking his intestines. And he had this, like, epic battle with the squid, so he, like, got rid of it and... and uh, uh, unpried it from the walls of his intestines and returned it to the the dirty water of his stomach and then left. I mean, like, that's his personal testimony. So it's not like you go thinking, like, oh, well, here's a here's a Western doctor <laughs> or anything. Uh, but there's something about the guy that, you know, when I talk to him on the phone, he's, he's uh, you know, he's an incredibly locked-down dude outside of the metaphysical. He's got a, a wife and he's raising a new baby and, you know, he's, he's, he's very, uh, he's an upstanding member of his community. He just has beliefs that, uh, that you really, you need to be kind of inculcated into the world of ayahuasca to really follow him on. My first thought when I hear that story and when I read the story about the, his battle with the giant squid is to laugh. But then I feel bad that I'm laughing you know, because he really does have those beliefs. Was that yeah? What, what I, was I that mean, like I, for you as a reporter to like kind of I, sift through and, and to kind of to 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 be that reporter who who's listening to those stories? It's a good question, and and there's another element to it, which is also that Carlos Tanner, like me, is a well-educated white dude from. The United States, and I have a friend of mine, who's also well-educated and American, but she's Hispanic and and part Peruvian, and you know she was just merciless and mocking these mm -hmm. these people, these hippies, these weirdos, these yo-yos who were like traveling into the jungle and and finding God, uh, you know, like it was some huge revelation, and and it's easy to mock, especially because you've got these you know white Americans who are flying around the world to get really high. Um, however, embedded in her complaints also is a very common Hispanic kind of racism and bias, which is that they never believed this this stuff, this jungle medicine mm -hmm. uh, that Shipibos and others were were doing. So you have a whole other set of bias where, you know, Shipibos and, and Don Enrique told me a lot about this and about 
and his wife Wilma also about how they were disallowed from practicing this medicine, how people would laugh at them and like, you know, they were constantly marginalized by Peruvian society, but this is legitimate to them. Like this is their, this is, it's not just their medicine, it's their religion, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so yeah, so I think that helped me get past the like, you know, the, 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 I guess just the hilariousness of wrestling squids in your stomach and all this and, and so on. It's just, you, you do kind of go in there and you want to have a little bit of credence and just be like, I'm not going to be that bastard from Lima or from the United States. who's just like kind of, you know, spitting on all this tradition and thinking I know a lot better. You know, I think any one of us, you know, you, myself, anybody can also uh, have, some stories about how Western medicine has not just seemed, you know, ridiculous, but also downright cruel and inhumane at times, and in ways that that need a corrective. So I was I was doubly receptive to the idea of like, okay, well, let's just hear it out. And then, of course, you know, once you actually do ayahuasca, then whatever intentions I think you might have had um, get repurposed, reformed, reborn in this, you know, just general blast of psychedelic uh, experience that that you can't really prepare for and then you just have to try to get your takeaways from it what you can okay so while we're talking about giant squids and other hallucinations can you talk about what you experienced but also how you were able to report that how you were able to reliably get down either on paper or in some way what you what you experienced so then you could use it so it could be in your notebook Ayahuasca is interesting, uh, to answer that, that last question, I, I, as I pointed out in the story, I have a, a, a long and a healthy history with psychedelics, uh, probably no more than anyone else who went to college in California in the 90s, but still like there, like I, I kind of, uh, you know, I know what it, it is to do acid or mushrooms and, and try and, you know, remember what it was that was happening. Ayahuasca felt a little distinct to me because you know, as I put it in the story, there's always the door is cracked open for you. Like, you know, it's always just behind you and to your left. And you can you can leave this room of like cosmic insanity at, <laughs> at any moment. And that was greatly reassuring. Like I had some bad trips where, uh, you know, as a younger man where you just think like you're never going to come back to Earth and like you're going to be just babbling in a corner for uh, eternity. So that was very reassuring, but it also, I think, there's something about it that made me able to feel present, you know, in my role as a journalist, even. A lot of the questions I had, you know, going into it and, and crossing over now, I would say that the questions that I had for, like, for Mother Ayahuasca, this sort of, you know, uh, personification of, of the drug and the god uh, that, that Ayahuasca is, like, were, were revolved around journalism, and, and even this reporting uh, project like they were questions of consent almost you know like <laughs> am I allowed to be here am I allowed to be like taking this this drug and having these visions uh, for the purpose of writing about it later on and kind of laying it all bare in that clinical and inhuman way that journalists do and now whether this is mother ayahuasca talking or me just you know, giving myself a, a free pass, the answer was totally like, yes, you are allowed to be tripping balls and like in this, in this environment, in this like sacred hallucinogenic space uh, and to be re doing it as a reporter. 
Um, so, so that sort of like, you know, that karmic consent uh, uh, secured, I just went ahead and remembered everything I could. I had my iPhone with me, was taking voice notes during the sessions, like when I was, you know, and like, you know, like a lot of beat poetry, they weren't really revelatory when <laughs> you're not high. You're just kind of like, wow, I'm really high. <laughs> and, uh, there was a lot more behind it, I'm sure, but it didn't really sound that amazing when I was done. I did like, you know, when I was heading out into the jungle to go to the laboratory or something, I took my iPhone and took this like video of, of the, the plants of the Amazon rushing by my iPhone light. So I was very documentarian through the whole thing. I had a video camera uh, also with me in camp and I did video interviews uh, with Don Enrique and, and, and I recorded on a Zoom audio recorder some of the uh, Icaros or the, the kind of sacred chants that they do. So it was incredibly well documented mm -hmm. kind of in a multimedia sense. Figuring out what to make of all of that, and you know where to um, where to position yourself, and how to explain this to people who are never going to do this drug, um, was more challenging. And I think that's where the just establishing at the very beginning the concept of crossing over was useful because you can't actually have one single conversation about ayahuasca and and do it in a journalistic way like there's there's no way to talk about the squid in Carlos's stomach you know there's no way to talk about like some of the the things that I saw when I was there like my dead ancestors about the you know my fake visions of the vine creature about jaguars and snakes like that doesn't actually compute to anybody but if if people will follow me to the kind of metaphysical then uh, then I think it's I think there's something worth talking about there. Mm -hmm. I could imagine a newspaper editor saying, "We the giant squid thing is really interesting, but we need somebody else to confirm it for us." <laughs> oh, we are so far past any of that. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, that was the beauty of this. Like there was there was going to be no kind of uh, you know uh, suspenders wearing you know cigar chomping uh, newsroom hound uh, on this piece. This was a completely uh, in, indulgent uh, flight. Of of, uh, of fantasy, and I was telling you know I was telling some editors um, uh, back before I left about this trip, and and you know they didn't. There's not much you can say <laughs> to it. You know, there's not a sort of like interrogative line of approach to take. You just go and 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 I think fundamentally, if I did anything right with this story, it was that attempt to be fair mm -hmm. uh, and to 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 root everything in my own experience and, and just try and speak from that, um, which I hope contributes to the general literature, uh, to use a loaded word, of, about ayahuasca because, again, like most of what you hear is like that poor kid who had a heart attack during the ceremony, but it turns out he had a heart condition or people who are on Xanax but won't tell anybody or, you know, on, on prescription antidepressive depressants and they won't tell anybody and then they have like terrible reactions mm -hmm. during the ceremony. Um, you know, there's, there's shit can definitely go wrong, but, uh, in, in my experience, uh, there's reasons for that. And it certainly is not something that has to be part of the experience. Right. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, this, this, the notes and everything for this story kind of sat around in a notebook for a couple years. And can you talk about, you know, why, what was, what was, what was up with the length of time before you felt you were able to write about it? 
Uh, part of it is just like old-fashioned procrastination, which for which there is no justification, nor really, you know, there's there's no psychedelic medicine I could take. I don't think that would cure my general, you know, bouts of writer's block. Um, the context on that, though, also is that we were starting this company and we were starting to grow and and we were working a lot on it and I felt less and less like a writer who can just go and take a week off and really inhabit these thoughts uh, and more and more like somebody who's, you know, back in editing like I was doing at time or, you know, being a manager even of people. So, you know, it just got kind of shelved uh, again and again for one reason or the other for about a year and a half or two years and then you know as, as I talk about in the story as well uh, I actually got diagnosed with something much more serious than than whatever I'd gone and asked a mother ayahuasca about I, I had a, a form of uh, thyroid cancer that um, I was diagnosed with and it was a surprise to me I'm in my 30s it didn't feel like uh, time to start getting cancers um, and yet uh, I think it 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 really complicated then dealing with the ayahuasca story because it's an essentially a story about like a medical diagnostic process that I went through and all of a sudden here's this like pretty messed up coda to it which is that uh, for all of my amity for for uh, Mother Ayahuasca and, and my positive experience and my, my inkling of a belief that there's something to the diagnostic powers of, of that particular traditional medicine, um, it turns out that the whole time I had had this cancer growing in my neck, uh, which, you know, my doctors later, the very Western kinds of doctors I had at Flown Kettering uh, Cancer Center had basically said, yes, it was definitely around uh, a couple years back when I would have been in Peru. So to me, I took that as a sort of major failing of Mother Ayahuasca as a clinician. <laughs> you know, I was not, I was much less impressed after after that came out. Uh, and I kind of wanted, obviously I had some stuff to deal with just through surgery mm -hmm. and radiation and, and uh, dealing with the cancer, which, which thankfully uh, seems to have taken and I, I seem to be cancer free. But I, I'm, I had to go through that before I could sort of Really, and I realized I would have to incorporate that into this story if I was going to tell, the, you know, the story of my experience uh, with it. Well, let's talk about the uh, the website that the story ran on roadsandkingdoms.com, which you are an editor of and a founder of. Can you talk? Can you talk about the website and and kind of like what what you guys are? Yeah, absolutely. It's the Roads and Kingdoms is is a, uh, a a media company at this point, and we were sort of uh, branching out past the website. We we have live events with uh, foreign correspondents here in Brooklyn um, that are kind of interview events. We've got a book uh, series coming out with Harper Collins um, that's part of uh, Anthony Bourdain's uh, imprint. Uh, over there, we have a a new series. Anthony Bourdain actually came on a couple months ago as uh, a our first investor in the company and is an editor at large at the site now and we're looking at tons of exciting new projects that range from you know video to uh, to events to other print uh, endeavors so it's kind of it's growing in a way that that I think responsible media companies have to these days it's growing in a lot of different directions um, but it all started from that first combination of, of myself and, and my interests, which were in kind of global conflict and 
uh, and and things that were tied more closely to the news cycle. And my partner, who really had a knack for um, for finding the, the ways of telling those kinds of stories through things like food or, or music um, or culture, I had wanted to leave time in part, I mean, obviously, economically, it felt it felt dicey there, and and that has unfortunately continued to play out. Where they're downsizing, they're now moving to Lower Manhattan, and um, and you know the the kind of existential crises kind of continue one after the other there. Um, so, despite the amazing people who were there, and and many of whom are still at the magazine, I wanted to go and try and you know be the aggressor on some level in this industry and try and find solutions instead of sitting around and thinking, man, this isn't working, uh, which was a, kind of a feeling of being in legacy media. Um, and from the storytelling side, I wanted to be able to tell stories that were uh, more engaging, more expansive, a, a little bit more first person, not because I'm, I'm hopefully not because I'm just sort of besotted with myself, but because I think it, it's a, a new kind of uh, authenticity and authority, which is more, I think it's, it's more honest in some ways than the omniscient time voice that we used to bring to foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. um, so now we're telling stories, and it's not just me. Now we've got you know, freelancers from all over the world and, and really dedicated journalists who contribute pieces, and they, they bring conflicts or they bring... Uh, kind of international news in a way that you know where they're coming from and who they are, uh, and it's very intimate as a as a form. And I think it it I think it helps. I think people are like really engaged in a way that's hard to be with foreign news if you're not if you're not just taking people along with the, you and holding them by the hand as you bring them around the world. You know, we we felt at time as we were shutting bureau after bureau overseas, there was a notion, at least, uh, you know, on the 34th floor, I think, that nobody really gave a damn about the world, about global news. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think that's just, that's a problem that you can solve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the name of, the, of, of your company? Where does yeah, Roads and Kingdoms that was, come from? That was a hard one. I, I know you've got kids. I've got kids. Naming children <laughs> can be like really tough, right? The stakes are very high. It feels like, and uh, both with both my kids, we couldn't even get a name on them before we left the hospital. Like we had to, you know, get a TK on their birth certificate, essentially. And uh, so it was no different with naming a website. It just, uh, you know, it felt like we went through a lot of really bad names and things that were going to cause this child uh, media company of ours to grow up all wrong. Um, but one day we happened to cross this ninth century uh, travelogue written by this guy named Ibn al-Bakri, who was this amazing writer who, you know, a a thousand or more years before our time had described huge chunks of the world and done it as a travelogue. It was kind of uh, in, in that way that, that Arab uh, sort of enlightenment was so far ahead of the rest of the world. This was an astonishing work for its time. And the translation from the Arabic was uh, the Book of Roads and Kingdoms, although there were alternate translations like the Book of Tolls and Highways, which would have really sucked uh, <laughs> as a as a company name, um, but we stole it. We stole it directly from the Book of Roads and Kingdoms, just lopped off the book of and, and became Roads and Kingdoms. And it's a, you know, for us, it's a, it's a useful way of communicating a, a little bit of 
travel and politics and wonder and, and kind of uh, interest and intrigue uh, about the world at, at large. Well, Nathan, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We've been talking with Nathan Thornburg. Thornburg is a chief editor and publisher of the website roadsandkingdoms.com. He wrote the story, The Root of All Things, for that site. You'll also be able to find the piece this fall in River Teeth, a journal of nonfiction narrative. We're going to take a short break right now. When we return, we'll talk with David Caswell, founder of Structured Stories. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department is the only fully converged and integrated media program in Ohio. JDM majors apply converged skills in practical, hands-on labs using state-of-the-art hardware and software content creation tools. And they do it all alongside award-winning faculty who double as industry professionals. Recently chosen as Ohio's best non-daily student newspaper, the Collegian covers our campus and beyond. Ashland's 3,000-watt radio station, 88.9 WRDL, broadcasts local news, sports, talk, and today's best music to mid-Ohio and to the world on WRDLFM.com. Meanwhile, AUTV20 brings campus news, sports, and events to life in more than 12,000 homes. Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department, creating converged digital media professionals for the 21st century. Find more information and apply today at ashland.edu slash JDM. Welcome to our first ever second segment. I'm going to talk with David Caswell, who has created a new news database called Structured Stories. He hopes the database will empower everyone to collect, use, and improve a permanent record of news events. Caswell worked for two years on the news personalization team at Yahoo, and before that spent a decade working on data structures and geographic knowledge. David, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. Thank you. It's, uh, it's very good to be here with you. First off, can you talk a little bit about structured stories and, and what you mean by that term and, and what the website ultimately will entail? Sure. Um, Structured Stories is an attempt to work with, uh, with, with journalism, with journalistic events and journalistic narratives, to work with that uh, in terms of data. And I don't mean um, data uh, as a source of writing or uh, data about writing. I mean the actual journalism itself, the actual events uh, are represented as data. Uh, and this is a, uh, a relatively new concept. Um, there's been a, uh, a field in existence since about the late 60s of uh, computational narrative, working with the, the bones or the, the fundamental components of stories uh, in terms of computers. Uh, but that hasn't been applied to journalism. And so this is the first attempt to do that. Uh, so the, the, uh, the website itself is, you know, the intent there is that that, that is a... Uh, uh, essentially a database of journalism, but stored as data at its most kind of fundamental level and not as text. How do you see people using this in the future? Well, at, at the moment, it's, it's, uh, it's essentially an experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, so, we're, uh, you know, for the, the next, I guess, about six months or so, uh, we will be still proving out the feasibility of the concept. We've, we've uh, uh, proven a lot of, of parts of it, but we have other parts that we still have to prove out. 
Um, but in the long term, I think it, uh, it dramatically changes uh, what's possible for news. It doesn't replace, obviously, uh, language and articles and, and text uh, journalism, but it expands uh, what's possible with journalism. For example, uh, it, enables, um, it enables journalism to be uh, much more a, pool, a pooled resource rather than a flow resource. Journalism uh, is typically consumed by, uh, by articles and text and reporting that kind of flows through the news stream uh, these days minute by minute, you know, hour by hour, certainly day by day. Um, and what, what, what journalism in a structured form can do is allow that journalism to accumulate over time and to be as accessible uh, as current news. Uh, so it doesn't just disappear into an archived uh, uh, article, uh, it, it remains as instantly accessible as news from today. That's one, that's one uh, major change. Um, another one is, is that it decouples, it decouples this, the story or the narrative or the, the journalism from the way that's presented. Uh, and and that's, uh, that's not just in terms of the device that it's on or the, the web presentation uh, and so on. It can also, it can also be um, uh, in terms of, for example, the values of the journalism. This is a little, little, uh, little unusual, but you can encode the same story uh, with different sets of values and different events. So you could, you could look at exactly the same story, but encoded uh, through, uh, through one set of values versus another set of values. Um, there's other, uh, other possibilities. Another one is, is the possibility of, um, of separating, uh, separating news and, and journalism to some degree from the language that it's produced in. Uh, because, because, um, you know, structured journalism is, or, or structured stories is holding the journalism as data. It's a lot easier to consume that, that journalism in different languages. You can, you can do, uh, for example, machine translation on a lot of very small pieces of text rather than on uh, one large piece of text. And that makes the machine translation or the automated translation very easy. And so the possibility of something like a single repository of journalism that anybody in any language can consume in their own terms, that, that's a very real possibility too. There's others. Um, you know, what underlies all these is that by changing the mechanism uh, for storing journalism from text to data, you just remove, you change the assumptions and you remove a bunch of, of barriers to, uh, to doing these things. There's other things that, it, that, that structured journalism or structured stories will never be able to do. Text is, is, uh, is, is immensely powerful in so many ways, but, but, but this could open up some new, uh, some new possibilities. How did, you, uh, how did you end up working on something like this? Well, it's, it's, a, long, uh, it's a long story. The, um, my background is on the technology side in, in uh, uh, systems architecture for, uh, for data, basically unusual data structures, uh, for, for want of a better phrase. Um, and I worked with that for quite a number of years. Um, and then uh, about a decade ago, I, uh, I went to, to, uh, to work at Yahoo, uh, initially in, in the, um, the ad tech uh, side of things. But then I transitioned over to the news side, and specifically the, uh, the personalization team, where uh, uh, basically tools are in place to recognize uh, certain attributes of, of text content. Uh, those are referenced to what is known as a knowledge graph, a big knowledge database. And then that's used to personalize news uh, for the user. And it was kind of during the course of that experience that I, uh, I started to, to think that a much more sort of fundamental 
um, uh, set of tools were, were necessary uh, to really sort of address these problems on both the production side and the consumption side of news. Uh, I always had an interest in computational narrative and I kind of put all this together uh, about, probably about two years ago or so and I've been working on it ever since. So it's pretty much an independent research project. Um, this year I'm a, I'm a fellow at the, uh, the Reynolds uh, Journalism Institute at, at uh, University of Missouri and so this is, a, um, this is the year when sort of the academic community is, is really starting to engage with this and I'm starting to be uh, uh, sort of more, more plugged into that, that side of, uh, of journalism. Well, it sounds really interesting, and it'll be it'll be fun to watch and see how your research plays out. Well, David, thanks so much for joining the podcast. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. That was David Caswell, founder of Structured Stories. We provided a link to his website on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to our third and final segment. We're going to call it Recommended Reading. It's not very creative, so if you have a better idea, send it along to gangrythepodcast at gmail.com. We'll wrap up each episode from now on with a short description of something worth reading, courtesy of someone who read the pieces. If you want to participate, and we hope you will, send an email to gangrythepodcast at gmail.com and include a two to three hundred word description of a story that you've read. In the meantime, I'm going to kick things off. Earlier this summer, Two magazines arrived in my mailbox simultaneously. One was the August issue of Esquire. The other was the July 20th issue of The New Yorker. Both had frightening pieces about the fragility of our planet, and both are definitely worth reading. I read Esquire's Ballad of the Sad Climatologists by John H. Richardson first. The story is about the despair many climatologists, who on a daily basis are confronted with the impending devastation of the planet due to climate change, face. Richardson starts and ends the piece with Jason Box, one of the climatologists who actually spoke out very vocally about the future of the planet. The piece does an excellent job of laying out the nightmare scenarios, like the Arctic losing its summer sea ice by next year, 84 years ahead of schedule and the possibility of the West Antarctic ice sheet melting and adding 20 to 25 feet of ocean levels, forcing 100 million people in Bangladesh to find a new place to live. It's a frightening story, but one everyone should read. The second story is also about a potential natural disaster, although one humans are far less likely to be able to predict or prevent. The really big one by Catherine Schultz ran in the July 20th issue of The New Yorker, It focuses on a little-known fault line that runs through the Pacific Northwest, beginning in Cape Mendocino, California, and ending somewhere around Vancouver Island, Canada. Contained within that expanse are the states of Oregon and Washington. Geologists call the area the Cascadia Subduction Zone, which refers to an area of the planet where one tectonic plate is sliding underneath another. Those studying the zone believe a major earthquake, which could be accompanied by a massive tsunami, is imminent. The odds of an earthquake with an 8.0 to 8.2 magnitude happening in the next 50 years are 1 in 3. The odds of one bigger, reaching a magnitude upward of 9.2 in the same time frame, are 1 in 10. FEMA projects that 13,000 people will die in a Cascadia earthquake, and another 27,000 will be injured. The story is frightening, and it should be, 
We continually build homes and communities in the most fragile areas imaginable. The Pacific Northwest, particularly everything west of Interstate 5, is no different. Both stories should serve as wake-up calls that we have to take our planet and its frailties more seriously. Well, that's it for this episode of Gangry the Podcast. Thanks for listening. We've linked to many of the stories that we've been talking about on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. As usual, you can find us on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can also find us on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is a free service that lets you listen to podcasts on demand. Get the app at stitcher.com or in the app stores. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is supported by the Department of Journalism and Digital Media. Technical help was offered by Steve Cease and John Scratta. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.